Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Today, in the middle of the summer, we've got a slightly more intimate group over at the third floor, sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. We have David Sanger of the New York Times and Ben Wittes of the Lawfare blog uh, in our tiny studio there and in a tiny studio in New York City. You have me. And uh, what I would like to talk about or start by talking about is um, the one subject we can't seem to get off of, and then I'll try to get off of it as we get further along, but but that is the swirl of scandal and headlines and hearings and discussions around the president. Uh, the president kicked off this week with a series of tweets that made it feel like he's sort of sitting in a corner in his pajamas, tweeting out at the world that he feels is assailing him. Uh, he attacked his own attorney general. Uh, he attacked Republicans on the Hill. He attacked the media. Um, and the consequences of all of this are as yet unknown. Uh, and also, this is a week which at least had billed uh, hearings up on the Hill with Jared Kushner uh, and Paul Manafort, the president's uh, former campaign manager, and the president's son, Don Jr., uh, just let's get the state of play. Let's just start with where we think we are in this story right now, what the significance of, let's just say, uh, the Kushner discussion is, and then we'll move out from there. Ben, why don't you frame it as you see it? Well, so, of course, how you frame this uh, depends in part on where you think it's ending up, right? So if if you believe... Uh, as um, the president does, that there's nothing to any of this, then we're in the middle of a path that leads to nowhere. Uh, if you believe that this is a path that leads to uh, somewhere shocking and significant, then the question is how far along that path do you think we are? And I, in my case, the answer to that is I, I don't know. Um, and you know, I think what we've learned this week is that the president, which we kind of already knew, is that the president is monumentally dissatisfied with the entirety of the federal law enforcement leadership. Uh, he's embittered toward his attorney general. He uh, has contempt for his deputy attorney general. Uh, he loathes the acting FBI director and he uh, has suspicion and contempt for uh, the special counsel as well as his entire staff. Uh, and we have reached the point where congressional committees actually want to hear from the principals involved in 
uh, the Trump campaign. And so I think you know you could make an argument that this is the point where the uh, the foam in the beer is starting to uh, crest over the side of the the tankard. Uh, on the other hand, you know, most weeks in this presidency have sort of felt that way. And so you could take the view in it that this is the week that we find out that the foam in the beer keeps rising, but the walls of that tankard are actually higher than we knew. Well, that's a very complicated metaphor for the hour of the day at which we're recording this, but let me think about that a second. Um, well, let me ask you a question, Ben, before we get to David. Um, why doesn't the president just fire Sessions? I mean, he's like he's beaten up on him. He's throwing him under the bus. There were rumors that this leak last week that Sessions, uh, you know, ab about Sessions, which seemed quite incriminating, came out of the White House. What's the game? So I this involves uh, speculating about the mind of Donald Trump, which I, you know, religiously avoid doing. Um, but to me, the more salient question is the reciprocal question, which is why does Sessions tolerate this? Uh, you know, if my boss, if I went on national television and uh, said that I had been very unfair to him and that if he'd known then what he knows about me now, uh, and the way I'd behave, he never would have appointed me. And he thinks I really handled my confirmation test, not that I've ever had confirmation testimony or given it, but he thinks I really handled it badly. I wouldn't show up for work the next day. And I, I have this sort of head-scratching uh, attitude about Sessions's side of this relationship, which is why on earth do you subject yourself to the daily humiliation of working for this man, given what he says about you in public. And I, I have no answer to that. I, I can't uh, think of another situation in which any federal subordinate at his level has, and it's as an agency head, has suffered the public uh, uh, ridicule that he is taking from the president of the United States. Uh, I can't think of an analog for that, and I, do, I don't understand uh, why a person with uh, you know even sort of middling self-respect sits still for that. David, you've been in Washington since a while ago. You were about to say I the Wilson waited. administration or something like that. I, I, I just thought you know I'm turning over a teapot dome. Here. <laughs> 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 Yeah, you know, the look, the president should be grateful. In Teapot Dome, there were two special prosecutors. That's, that's right. And, well, you know, he's only got one. It's early days yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be, pa be, pa be patient. They don't, they, the um, two of Teapot Dome didn't start simultaneously. <laughs> oh, yes, they did, did actually. They? Yes, they were pointed to work as a team. Oh, you've seen the pictures of those two guys sitting there. They're very, very impressive looking. Yeah, no, no. It's, Starched it's a, collars. A little like Rothkopf sitting, you know, high above Columbia University. <laughs> you know, starch collar tie. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's how I dress, David. Um, uh, so as you look at this, as you look at this, think about Ben's metaphor. Is the froth coming over the mug now? Um, Are we there yet? The, my problem with Ben's metaphor is that the froth coming over the mug is usually when you're in the midst of a celebration. 
And when I deal with people in this administration right now, they don't sound in an enormously celebratory mood. They are basically divided into two different camps. Uh, there is the camp that is simply trying to figure out how they navigate the investigations and all that and the, the, the departure of uh, Sean Spicer, the arrival of Anthony Scaramucci who, who seems to me like sort of a, a character out of a Don Pesci movie, um, uh, the over-the-top praise for the president that he offered and so forth tells you something about how that operation is, is going to move. And then you've got a bunch of very serious people at the National Security Council and the State Department and elsewhere who are trying to sort of look away from the, the, tr the car wreck that they are driving by. And rather than sort of rubberneck at it, they're looking at like something else, like the oncoming traffic and saying, we're just going to focus on ISIS or the Afghanistan plan or the healthcare made, made bill. Made in America Week. Or Made in America Week. Made in Week. America Week, yeah. That, right. that, that, Which that, was a big success. It turned out what was made in America were new press secretaries, okay? Uh, right? Um, and, uh, and all that. And they're trying to pretend that they're working in sort of a normal administration. Many of them have in the past worked in a normal administration. And they keep reminding themselves that they shouldn't compare this to their previous experience in government because there's something different at the top. Now, the phenomenon that, that Ben just described about the, uh, about the whole judiciary side of the government, the attorney general's office and, and all that also applies though in the foreign policy side. So what have we heard in the past couple of days? That the president doesn't like the way he is briefed by his national security advisor. Um, that as a result, no one's quite sure where the national security advisor stands. That Rex Tillerson, uh, six months, not even six months into his time as secretary of state, is already thinking about getting out, whether it's the end of this year or the middle of next. You know, he's sort of going to do his State Department reorganization and then not sort of stay around to see how it works out. We don't know if that's true or not, but certainly in the limited encounters I've had with him and they have been limited he sounds like a man frustrated by the way government operates and government decisions are made, particularly in this government. You hear the same thing about a raft of other uh, appointees um, and you, at, you hear the CIA director might become the national security advisor at some point. You hear about other replacements in the wings. This is not normal activity for six months in. Six months in is when your assistant secretaries, your undersecretaries and all that are finally confirmed and you're sitting around and you're working out policy and sorting through that stuff. You're not looking at the exits. And that I think in an odd way, David, might be the bigger sign of the instability of this administration that they're just not getting the traction on the daily stuff you need to go do. And if you're looking for evidence of that, just look at the one what, – what is likely to be the one major piece of legislation to get through and signed by the president of the United States. It's going to be sanctions uh, – a sanctions resolution against Russia, the wording of which was worked out this weekend. 
that the president desperately doesn't want to sign. Uh, as I wrote in the Times, as this whole thing came together, um, this is the product of a president denying the existence of the overwhelming intelligence that the Russians were involved in the election hack and a Russian president who overplayed his hand and got caught doing it. So they both have this coming. And that he will sign only because it was with a veto-proof majority and by signing it, he will save himself the humiliation of having a veto overridden. Yeah. I mean people have been asking, is he going to sign this? He's not going to sign this? Of course he's going to sign it. Would the first piece of legislation he would like to see passed in his time be over his veto? He'll be the Andrew Johnson of our era. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I mean, the question, of course, is will he enforce it? You know, there's, you know, the, I, I find this. There's a lot know, of there's a lot of room for this. him not to. Yep. Right. Yep. And and there's a lot of room for him to give Russia other stuff, as he has been with the Syria ceasefire, with the FaceTime, with the defending Putin again, you know, and so on and so forth. So you take this, you just dilute it by not enforcing it, and then you throw in a bunch of other stuff. It's not going to be that hard. Um, and then they'll point to it but, and they'll say, well, look, we did something. But David, you're, 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 you're convincing, you're, you're mixing substance with symbolism here. On all the substantive facts, you're absolutely right. When he signs that document, the document has penalties against Russia for its interference in the election and interference that he has maintained publicly he doesn't believe actually happened. So that's one interesting point. The second is where did he and Putin want to be? They wanted to be in a position where they were negotiating the deal that was going to get rid of the existing sanctions on uh, Ukraine, on the annexation of Crimea, on human rights and so forth. Ain't going to happen. Yeah, by the way, there was a story early, earlier today that um, Siemens is pushing now for more sanctions against the Russians because they diverted Siemens equipment from Russia to Crimea. Um, That's right. This, there is a there is a there's a an interesting case that's out there in which Siemens believes that they were um, misled about what the ultimate destination of this equipment was going to be, and my guess is that they're not pushing for it as much as the German government has told them they've got to make this one right if they're going to continue to do business there. So I so just in, then we, we, go, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, listening to David and, and thinking about it, we're in this kind of interesting place here, right? We have the of the president's four top cabinet officials. Um, the, you have the president beating up on his attorney general and us speculating as to why he might, you know, still be staying in the position given the abuse he's taken. And you have stories floating from Axios and other places uh, suggesting that Tillerson might leave by the end of the year. You have weekly stories that the president's chief of staff might leave, as well as stories suggesting that McMaster and Bannon and some of these other heavyweights in the middle of this whole thing um, are going to leave on thin ice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then on top of that, there are a bunch of characters, big name characters, whether it's Jared, who's the secretary of everything, uh, or the president's son, who has no role in this administration except that he has the same name as president, um, all looking like their careers are in jeopardy. The what David's point is that the government is not actually coalescing the way it's supposed to do to function, and quite apart from the the the, the scandal, we have this other issue, which is 
the, you know, nobody's home. Well, that's clearly correct. I mean, you know, newsflash, nobody's home. And, um, you know, there's a very large amount of routine government business that is either being pushed up to uh, much more senior officials than normally do it or in in many cases being pushed down to much more junior officials than uh, normally do it or in some cases just not getting done because uh, people the, – the, the more senior people don't spend their time on these things and the more junior people don't feel entitled to do it and so what you end up with is – uh, you know, stagnation in which important things don't happen and important decisions don't get made and nobody's responsible. And that's what happens when you don't staff a government. Now, uh, you know, uh, and that's, by the way, true at, at the domestic level as well as at the foreign policy level. I mean, the Justice Department still, I believe, only has three Senate-confirmed officials in it. Um, and there may be, uh, at least in Maine justice, there may be others in a lot, a bunch of U.S. attorneys and whatnot, but you know, you're you're talking about a, a substantially depopulated federal government in in important areas, and you know, sometimes the uh, president and the people around him talk about this as a deliberate strategy, and sometimes they blame Democrats for stalling people, though they actually haven't made a lot of nominations. And sometimes uh, they sound, you know, have a sort of deer in the headlights attitude toward it. But the truth is that it's it, it's a real effect, what whatever you attribute it to, and it's it's one that has all sorts of deleterious consequences. Um, I guess you know one of the other interesting sidebars of this whole thing, and it brings us back to the Kushner testimony, and maybe. Uh, or at least the statement we know that 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 Kushner submitted is that this administration where which began with and continues to have this kind of notion that we're business people and we're really good at managing everything uh and that's why you know the president said let me do this I'm a businessman I know how to do this seems to be really terrible at managing things and you know this despite the fact that you know the new uh white house director of communications was like, I'm a businessman, and so I know how to get stuff done. But um, – And don't forget Rex Tillerson, who was going to reorganize the State Department and make it you know, based on principles at Exxon and other places. Um, how many right, times have we and, heard this, and, David? I mean, you and I used to talk about this when President Bush got elected, and you may remember that before 9-11, the whole argument was this is the first president with an MBA – and he was going to bring the disciplines of the business world to government and he was going to push decision making down into the agencies after the White House you know, had taken over too much during the Clinton administration, the administration you were in. And um, what happened? We got the most centralized decisions made only at the White House administration until Barack Obama was elected. Right. <laughs> right. Look, there is so there is a long-term trend that began probably in the Eisenhower or certainly Nixon administrations of central of the beginnings of a, a sort of greater centralization of executive branch decision making and uh, you know the NSC starts to become a substantially more powerful 
uh, coordinating mechanism, and that has really accelerated in the last few administrations. Um, and you know, actually, this administration has, to some extent, reversed that in the sense that you know, I think it's it's fair to say that Mattis is operating with more autonomy from the White House than most prior recent secretaries of defense, partly because there's you know, really nobody in the White House who knows anything, um, whereas he really does and he's a kind of larger than life personality. Um, but the wrinkle, of course, is that there is the irrational factor, which is that at any moment, the, where the president might dec decide that he cares about something, um, particularly if it involves, you know, Muslims or something like that, um, and you know, he kind of snaps into action and then interferes. So you get these, um, you know, assigns things, for example, that would normally be in the State Department's purview to Jared Kushner. Um, and so you get these, this very kind of bifurcated world in which uh, the agencies operate with more autonomy than – and NSC doesn't do very much in general except when it does in which case you get things like the executive order which are in the travel ban situation which is written without substantial agency input at all. And so I think you have this very weird bifurcated, uh, you know uh, – deference to the agencies except when you have exactly the opposite. And I think, you know, the result is a lot of people with whiplash. I actually, I I would, I, I know what you're talking about, and but I would kind of argue against it. And maybe David will talk about it for a second and then we'll move, move on to a different subject. But I, there is a lot of deference to the Department of Defense. And in fact, one of the most esteemed, uh, noted Washington insiders, observers that I know the other day referred to General Mattis as the deputy president for defense, um, essentially suggesting that, that, that Trump had deferred to him greatly. Uh, but in almost no other case can we cite real examples uh, or with very, very few other cases. There's a there's the commerce has a little traction on a couple of things because of Wilbur Ross. Uh, but in in almost no other cases do you really see the agencies getting much um, traction. And I might add, we just haven't had the blow up with Mattis yet. There's a very good story in Politico by Susan Glasser about the Afghan process um, and discussions within the the NSC about Afghanistan. And and you recall one of the reasons everybody thought that Mattis had so much power uh, was that it was said that the White House was going to defer to them on, on troop deployment levels. But when you go and read this story, it turns out, you know, Mattis and, and with the support of McMaster and, you know, they present a plan and, and Trump doesn't want to do it. And it gets very, very hot and heated in there. And so it may not be that defense actually has the uh, the, the the authority delegated to them that that we're assuming in this discussion. David, what's your take on all that? Well, a couple of things about Mattis. Um, first of all, he had the benefit of being the only cabinet secretary who was seeing large and unquestioned increases in his budget. Right, so he had a lot of room to go do constructive 
positive things versus Tillerson, who was facing a 30 percent cut. It's not going to be 30 percent when it's all done, but that was a proposal. And everybody else who were who were seeing their roles by and large shrink. So um, as a result, he could – Tillerson had the – I'm sorry. Mattis had the advantage of thinking about new things and new missions and everybody else was spending their time figuring out who were they going to lay off and what department – what parts of the department were they going to go close. So that's a fundamentally different view. The second thing is that the Afghan uh, project has gotten wrapped up in uh, the one thing that Trump has said consistently over the past 10 years, which has been, why are we in all these crazy places and parts of the world we we don't understand defending people who don't really want us there? Shouldn't we be pulling back? And so while he's being told in each briefing, sir, if we are not in X place, we create a vacuum and you create the opportunity for the Taliban to come into Afghanistan or the Chinese to come into the South China Sea or you fill in the regional blank and I will tell you what country will fill in the vacuum. Um, uh, Trump fundamentally – does not want to go see us increase our presence any place where there isn't a business rationale for doing it. And even in Afghanistan, they're trying to come up with business rationales now to convince the president that we should be there. Um, so uh, I think that's sort of the, the core of this argument, whereas McMaster and Mattis are looking at this in traditional military terms and saying the United States has been investing in Afghanistan since 2001. They look at the calendar. They see it 16 years later. We can't say we have appreciably changed the trajectory of the country and they simply don't want to leave in a way that it collapses on their watch. I have to say, I you know, if if – if you were going to um, ask me who in the administration has greater grounds to resign, Sessions or McMaster, it would be a pretty close call with me. Um, McMaster well, ex- except for the fact that the, that the president isn't dissing McMaster in tweets every day, whereas he is dissing. No, he's he's dissing him in terms of behavior. Yeah, um, but but. I you know I understand I understand the dispute, but this all goes back to the core. Donald Trump sold himself as this big manager. He's doing a terrible job managing. People are leaving. People aren't coming in. They're not getting anything done. But here comes Jared Kushner, the crown prince of of the administration, um, and and all of a sudden he's getting sucked into this discussion, and he submits a statement prior to going up on the hill. And in his statement, essentially says, I really didn't know what I was doing. And those false statements that I filed in violation of federal law, that was actually my assistant's fault. Uh, And so this genius manager, who actually has never demonstrated any genius for management, um, also seems to be pleading the case, as does Trump regularly, that I'm new to this. I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't know how to manage it. Ben, was that your takeaway from his his statement? So actually, no. Um, I want to say a few cautious words in possible defense of Jared Kushner here, which is that he uh, made public today an 11-page statement uh, that is uh, actually informed by the record by competent counsel and whether the counsel who 
wrote it was Abby Lowell or whether it was someone out of Wilmer Cutler or what used to be called Wilmer Cutler Pickering, now Wilmer Hale. I'm not sure, but um, I, I think this is actually a very interesting document because it is the first time that somebody uh, in the immediate Trump orbit has worked with real lawyers to go through the actual record and produce a document that says what he did and didn't do and uh, and produced it in a setting in which he uh, could have real legal liability if it wasn't true. Uh, and so I think that for that reason alone, it's a pretty interesting document. And I think on the specific point that you raise, uh, the uh, the document you know has an interesting story to tell if you believe it or whether you believe it or not, which is that the um, the SF86 form was submitted prematurely. Um, it was it omitted not merely uh, contacts with Russian officials. But contacts with uh, officials of – I forget what the number was uh, – a few dozen yeah. countries. It was, it was basically all of his foreign contacts. All of his foreign contacts were omitted. He immediately uh, notified the bureau that – or the transition team that it had been submitted prematurely and that he has been working since to, uh, to uh, supplement it. Um, and that the sub, the initial effort to supplement it, it ignored, overlooked this meeting because it was so inconsequential. But he discovered this meeting, or his counsels discovered this meeting, uh, on their own in in April, and and supplemented the record with it. And I actually thought that that was uh, there's things about that explanation that sound. Uh, uh, certainly dilatory in the speed with which he did it. But I actually think along with some other things he said in it that statement, believable. It, there was, yeah. there's a lot that is not incredible to me about that. And so, um, I, you know, I think before we ridicule Jared Kushner uh, too much uh, about, about this, I, I do think, you know, it's worth saying, well, wait a minute, there, you know, the accounts he's giving of some of these meetings are reasonably plausible and they're an important corrective to to the existing record. Let, well, let, let me give something that's sort of there, halfway the, between you and 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 Ben on this. That okay, okay. That the the best case that Jared Kushner could put together in this 11-page document was a case for being naive and overwhelmed. Now, I'm willing to believe the overwhelmed part because he had never been involved in a presidential campaign and all of a sudden you've got the fire hose of that and then a transition where he hasn't. The naive part comes in in places where he says by his own account to um, Kislyak and some others. So tell us how we set up a channel for secure communications because Kislyak is saying our generals need to talk to you about, about Syria. And uh, the first idea he's got, his own idea it sounded like, was why don't we come over to the Russian embassy and go use your secure channels? Now, anybody who has ever been within 500 yards of the uh, counterintelligence uh, side of the FBI or 
is aware of how the NSA deals with this stuff and so forth, must have had shivers going up and down their back at that moment. And you have to ask yourself, if this person was going to be the savior of Mideast peace, trade with China and everything else, what does it mean that he okay. made that suggestion? So, so, so hang on because I, that I'm not disagreeing with at all. Um, and look, I on the other hand, uh, that is – Still, with with you know, you're correct, and that is in no sense normal or best practices or reasonable or uh, a, a good thing to have somebody who knows that little involved in in whispering in the ear of the president elect. It is still a far cry from the news story that emerged, uh, I believe, from the Washington Post, not from you guys. Uh, that he had proposed setting up a secret back channel to keep stuff away from U.S. intelligence. Well, he didn't get to the question of what his motive was in that document. Right. Well, he did. He, he said it was a, a – He a, said a, it was a way to talk about Syria. It was a way of talking uh, – of having a single conversation about Syria given that they did not have a secure line. Well, his other in, alternative could have been to say something Ben, like – let me call my friends at the Pentagon or the State Department and see if we can set up a secure line using an existing U.S. government to Russian government David, facility. there is no earthly way in which this is a good proposal or a reasonable proposal. It's a really stupid it's idea. It's a really stupid <laughs> idea and it's exactly the kind of idea you would expect to get the FBI counterintel folks with their hairs on the back of their neck standing up. That my sole and limited point is that from this document, we learn for the first time sort of what the other side of a bunch of these stories yeah, are. And, right. and they are an important corrective they are. To, to, the, to the direction. And he would have been wise to bring it out the day that the Washington Post turned out their story. And it tells you something about their own processes that they haven't – they waited until this morning. Correct. And he would have been yeah. really wise to many months ago say, wow, we need to find out every foreign contact we have and uh, every contact with anyone who's ever been within 100 miles of the Russian border uh, and disclose every one of those contacts and everything we can dig up about them. Uh, but that goes to oh. your point about stupidity and naivete. Well, look, you know, I, I, I'm willing to grant you, uh, Ben, that Jared Kushner has a better lawyer than some of the other people do. And he was able to come up with a, a, a better lawyered document uh, and that he was providing just exactly the kind of excuses that you might expect him to provide. Um, having said that, he did a lot of stupid things, uh, and uh, his failures to disclose are n are not limited to the failures to disclose countries he visited, but also there are failures to disclose uh, 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 indebtedness of his company and a whole host of other things. Uh, there's also a pattern of behavior that he doesn't address in this thing in which his family's company uh, is currently profiting from his role in the White House. Uh, and there's a pattern of behavior, which is not addressed in this, of other efforts to set up other kinds of back-channel discussions as a matter of course, not just this specific case with Russia, but in cases involving the Middle East and also separate kinds of discussions that were taking place with Flynn and so forth. And, and oh, so by the way, David, pattern. remember remember that Flynn 
was sitting there during the conversation with Kislyak. And the man who used to run the Defense Intelligence Agency didn't apparently interject, or at least there's no record that he did in the in the testimony or the statement we saw today, saying, you know, let's not go over to their place. Let's do it at our place. Yeah, well, that's right. And so, you know, I if you want to defend his lawyer, go ahead. But I'm going to continue to ridicule Jared because not only is he not qualified for any of the jobs that he's been put up for, but having said that, he did a bunch of things that were not just stupid and not just inexperienced. They were dubious for other reasons. Uh, and candidly, I, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface here. This was obviously his statement and it's spun in his direction. Uh, and I think a lot of the business ties that are there uh, uh, have have not been fully explored. And that's that's likely to come out in the course of the next uh, several months as well. Well, so I'd like I th- to shift the folk. Go on. Uh, no. So I think there's a, the, 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 there's a there's a few points on this. One is, look. I am not defending Jared Kushner. Um, my, my point is simply that when you're trying to figure out what the record supports, what the, what the reasonable conclusions are from the record, uh, the first time somebody releases their side of a story is always an important moment. And the point where you can look at that Venn diagram and say, okay, here are the facts that one one group of people is alleging that's not in contest. Here's where there are facts in dispute. Here's where an explanation is plausible. Here's where an explanation is not plausible. That is always a clarifying moment. And we know a lot more today, at least about where matters are contested than we did yesterday as a mm-hmm. result of the release of this statement. That's all I'm saying. It was a fundamentally good thing that he did. It was a very smart thing to turn the statement out and drive the conversation from that. I think he's going to be making uh, some other statements along the way. Uh, and then you know, later in the week, uh, we were expecting uh, that uh, we'd all be hearing from uh, Paul Manafort, uh, from, well, we weren't all expecting that. Ah, uh, okay. Some of us were. It was widely expected that we might hear from Paul Manafort and Donald Trump Jr. Um, and my guess is that that's going to take a good part of the summer to go play out. Yeah, my my guess is that a uh, competent lawyer, uh, um, given what we know about uh, Paul Manafort would be ill-advised to let Paul Manafort testify uh, without asserting the Fifth Amendment. By the way, David, you know, it, it takes a lot of chutzpah to say what we all knew and that, you know, with Ben sitting there, because as we know, Ben has become the voice of the deep state. I mean, look, he I have no, 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 no. recognized across America. Wait, just to be clear, I have no inside <laughs> information about Paul Manafort no, no. or his legal strategy. I merely observe that given the list of things that uh, Paul Manafort uh, has been publicly reported to be involved in uh, and certain certain exposure that rightly or wrongly has been reported that he might have, it might be an ill-advised thing on the part of his lawyers to let him walk into a hearing to answer questions. Well, remember, Ben, that David and I lived during the week at the bottom of Deep, deep silos. So, because we yes. are so concerned about the incoming, and so we 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 only stick our head up top in in time to do some podcasts. So we're we're yeah, reliant it's, it's, on you to understand all of this. 
And but you know, Ben has I have to say, Ben has has been miraculous in his ability to do more than one excellent podcast and an excellent blog. Uh, in that vein, before we leave this subject of this week, I, Ben, let me turn first with a question to you. The, the White House has been beating the drum of conflicts of interest associated with uh, the special counsel Mueller. Uh, what's the game there? Well, so there's, there's two games. Um, one there will lose decisively. Um, and the other, it's an open question whether they win or lose. So one game is uh, trying to find a, you know, an actual legal conflict of interest or appearance of conflict of interest that might cause uh, either Mueller or somebody on his staff to have to uh, back off uh, or recuse from something. And I think this is uh, most unlikely to be a fruitful line uh, just because, you know, like any competent prosecutorial office and Bob Mueller is nothing except ex if not exceedingly competent, uh, they will have internal conflict checks for all sorts of things that lawyers and investigators may work on and I assume that they will have vetted any conflicts that they uh, perceive they might have. Um, but the other side of it which is a, you know, a less trivial matter from my point of view is that it's a, a way of politically tarring the investigation as biased and politically uh, you know, tied to anti-Trump forces. And so in that sense, conflict of interest is not being used in its legal term of art sense but in its – in a sense closer to the way we think of like when the president says biased media or fake news, right? It's a sort of – it's a sort of code for fake prosecutor and this is a pretty tried and true uh, thing that administrations under investigation did. Readers, listeners of a certain age will recall how effectively the Clinton White House did this to Ken Starr and to his staff. Um, and if you say these things for a long enough period of time over and over and over again and with enough fervor, it does convince a very large number of people that there's something there and that's true irrespective of the merits of, of the thing. And so I think it's actually something that Bob Mueller is going to have to contend with in a sustained way. Uh, and that's certainly the lesson that I took from the Starr investigation is that, you know, these things are doable and they're doable effectively quite apart from the merits of any of the allegations. The only thing I'd throw into that, David, is, is this. You're watching Donald Trump use New York real estate rules in fighting an investigation that is operating by Washington investigatory rules. So, you know, he's used to fights with the zoning board in New York and others about how high your building can be and this and that where you throw everything at the judges and usually everything's kind of negotiable. He hasn't been in a situation like this before. So all of his instincts are to go after this the way he would go after a dispute in the business world. And um, so that leaves open the sort of $64,000 question here. If he made any effort and he suggested he was thinking about it but probably wouldn't do it to go after Mueller himself if the investigation got out there and got too close. Um, 
would the Republican majority in Congress rise up or not? And my guess is probably not, just given the way we've seen things happen so far. From everything we can glean, the thing about Mueller that most surprised him and perhaps most angered the president was that he can get the president's tax returns without having to ask permission from the president or whatever. He can simply obtain them in usually the usual legal procedures. And uh, everything we've heard is that both surprised and outraged Donald Trump. I have to say that, you know, cuts to the core of this to me. I still feel, and this is based on nothing at all, and I'm with, you know, Ben's earlier comment about avoiding speculation, but I still feel there's a number of facts out there that suggest that the bigger problem that is going to emerge from Trump and his team is going to have to do with things that we haven't really discussed yet, which have to do with business ties, tax returns, uh, sense of indebtedness and, and indebtedness to others, and 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 that the president's hypersensitivity to Mueller going into those realms and his explicit telling him not to go into those realms uh, beyond whether or not it crosses into trying to intimidate the special prosecutor or obstruction of justice suggests there is some there there. Now, because as Ben will yeah. tell us, telling special prosecutors what they can't go off and do is such a brilliant strategy. Yeah, so that's that's exactly right. So you know, one thing you do not do when you have a special prosecutor or an independent counsel is declare certain areas off limits, because the moment you do that. Uh, you raise a reasonable question in their minds, exactly the reasonable question that was just raised in in your mind, uh, which is, wait a minute, are they declaring that off limits because that's where the there there is, and uh, and so you know I think the other thing that you don't do is you don't you don't uh, challenge their integrity before they've done anything. Um, you know, it's one thing to to say that an investigative step is not appropriate or is illegitimate, and then you generally do that in a court filing, and you have a litigation about it, and everybody's everybody's pretty savvy that that's part of the process. But uh, to take a special prosecutor, particularly one who is, you know, has a universally admired prior career, and it's very hard to overstate the degree of that in Mueller's case, uh, who hasn't actually done anything yet uh, and to go after him and his staff um, on the basis of purported conflicts of interest, uh, that's an extremely aggressive step. And, you know, uh, you know, even in the New York real estate uh, litigation department, you actually – here there's no litigation, right? Uh, and so I, I think you know whether this proves to be uh, you know a brushback pitch uh, to Mueller of a type that is meant to send him a message but doesn't ultimately mean that much, or whether it's a reflection, as I suspect, of a genuine sense of fury and panic and anger on the part of the president. Uh, it's a very bad strategic judgment. Well. 
obviously this is all is going to play out over the course of the next several months or years, and we will continue to discuss it. For those of you who are trying to follow it, I do strongly recommend that in addition, obviously, to listening to Deep State Radio, you go and you listen to the Lawfare podcast, listen to their Rational Security podcast, uh, and follow the Lawfare blog. Ben is doing amazing work, as he has rightly gotten credit for, um, but I think you see it every single day. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you as an aside, one of the last things that I did when I was at Foreign Policy was arrange a relationship between Lawfare, Ben and Susan, and foreign policy. And now you can go to foreign policy and see some of their articles, see some new content, hear their podcasts on foreign policy. Uh, I'm very proud that I was involved with that. I think it's great for foreign policy. And it's great for all of you out there who are interested in in following this stuff. Obviously, the other clear way to uh, stay on the in uh, on the inside and know what's going on is read anything that David Sanger has written, um, uh, which you know some of days uh, you know is multiple articles, um, and uh, uh, we uh, uh, of course are, are really glad that he is a regular here. Uh, that's it for this episode of Deep State Radio. Please come back because we're going to continue this conversation with these guys uh, on Thursday. See you then. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.